You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, my freshman year in college was a time of crisis. Uh, I remember for me wanting to go to college and asking God to show me where I was supposed to go. And he never did. I was waiting for a voice or something. And finally, I just had to pick one. But it was a bit of a spiritual crisis of going, do I know how to hear from God? Like, why didn't he tell me where to go? And then when I showed up at college, I had a hard time making friends. And uh, I ended up moving into a house where I was the designated driver for all my roommates. And, but I had a trouble making buddies and had a girlfriend from high school and we didn't make the transition. And so it became a real crisis for me emotionally as I felt really isolated. Uh, and then all that doubt about God, where are you? Why is this so hard? Became a, an intellectual crisis of, wait a minute, how do I even know God's real? How do I even know he's there? My mom said he's real, but mom could be wrong. And so suddenly these little crises became a full-blown existential crisis of, I don't even know if there is a God. And and just right underneath the surface of that, for me, was this whole river of of deep hurt from parents' divorce and addiction to my family and all this kind of stuff that that hadn't risen up into my consciousness, but but was really driving a sense of anxiety in my soul. So I remember one moment uh, as a young man, I, I went to church by myself, and I sat in the back of the church, And this guy stood up at the front and he grabbed a copy of the scriptures and he read a paragraph from the Bible. And I didn't understand it, which was pretty common for me at the time. Uh, But then he took the next few minutes and he just explained it. And he wasn't a yeller, he, he didn't scream, none of it rhymed. He was certainly earnest in his explanation, but he just explained the passage. And I remember when he was done, uh, the thought crossed my mind, oh, I understand it. And as he read the text again, I thought, I know what that means. And as soon as I thought that, I burst out crying. And not just like a single tear, like in a movie, like, like it was like a snot started coming out. It was really embarrassing. Like I got to slip out of here while they're praying, kind of crying. And I was wondering what is going on with me? And the thought crossed my mind. Why am I having this response? And the thought that crossed my mind was because I heard the voice of God. And for me, Uh, heaven had seemed closed for so long and I longed to hear the voice of my maker and and I heard him because somebody, a community, cared enough to explain to me the words of God that a creation could hear from their creator through his eternal word. So we started a series last week, like Alex mentioned, called Church People. What does it mean to be church people? And last week, we talked about the ABCs of church. We talked about where the assembly of Jesus, that that's what the word church originally meant, assembly, but it took on a more specific title when Jesus said, I will build my church. So we said, we're the assembly of Jesus built around that man. Our faith is in him, who he is, and what he's done on our behalf to link us to God. We're the assembly of Jesus built of women and men from every tribe tongue and nation and neighborhood and block and borough and street, anywhere, he's pulled us together by his grace into God's family to continue in his work until we see his face. That's who we are. We are the people of Jesus, built of all manner of humanity, continuing in his work until we see his face. That's who we are. We're Jesus' people. And now as we continue this series, number two is we are the people of this book, that we are the people of the word of God. 
And yet some of you may hear that and go, yeah, okay, Ben, well, I have a question about that. Why do y'all care so much about the Bible? Why is the Bible such a big deal to you? Book written a long time ago, who really cares what it says? I remember for me once when I was traveling with my wife in Italy, uh, we were hanging out at this restaurant and a bunch of yuppies sat by us. In the technical term, they were young urban professional uh, women from London. And uh, we struck up a conversation with them and we started talking and we all like became friends, scooted our tables together, ended up hanging out the whole night. And so it was like an hour into it, they finally asked what we do for a living. And I told one of them, I teach the Bible to young people. And that's normally a conversation killer. That's why I like to wait, right? <laughs> Until we realize, oh, we're vibing, we're cool. And then you pull that out and they're, they're confused. You see the shock, like what? And it's like, surprise. And I remember that moment, she just went, why? Why would you do that? And her friend hit her like that was rude. And she was like, no, why? And I was like, I'm not offended by the fact that you're confused. Let me explain. And uh, I want to do that now. Why do we care so much about this book? Uh, it's interesting. There's so many passages in the Bible we could take you to this. We could take you to, to, to one of the earliest verses uh, about the church, the gathered people of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter's first sermon, a church explodes into life in Jerusalem. And they're described in Acts chapter 2 what they were like. This is kind of an anchor text for this series. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. We'll get to the rest of that later, but it says they devoted themselves. They moved with strength towards the, the teaching, the explanation of the official emissaries of Jesus. That's what apostles mean. His, his official representatives, they hung on their words to understand what he is like and what he has done, right? But instead of moving to that first verse, I, I decided to read to us uh, one of the last messages we get from, from the apostles, from the apostle Peter, uh, Paul. Paul, at the end of his life, after, after spreading the gospel around the known world at the time, is writing this letter, 2 Timothy, to his young protege. And it's interesting when you think about the last words before he's going to die to the next generation of leaders of his church, what does he want to say to them? And there's four chapters in 2 Timothy, and in four chapters, he repeats four themes four times. This is a major priority. What he says over and over again in Timothy is, Timothy, by God's power, preach God's word, endure the pain that that will cost until you're in his presence. Over and over again, he tells them that. By God's power, preach God's word. Endure the pain that will require until you are in his presence. He tells them in chapter one, share in the suffering for the gospel of God by the power of God. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard this good deposit entrusted to you. What you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be faithful to teach others. All this scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training. I charge you in the presence of God, preach this word. Over and over again, as Paul is fading into the background, he tells the young generation, you cling to this word, hold it, follow its pattern, deliver it, proclaim it until the day you see his face. And so it matters to him that we preach this word. Why do we do it? How do we do it? Why are we the people of the book? I want to give you three reasons why when you show up here, we care about this. I had a woman ask me once out front. She said, hey, I love this church. It's so powerful what's happening here. But why do you limit yourself to the message of Jesus. And I was like, let me explain. <laughs> but let me tell you why we are the people of the book. Number one is because this is the means of the new birth. This is the means of the new birth. 
Did you notice in our text what Paul said to young Timothy in chapter three? He's reminding him of his childhood, of his, of his grandma and his mom. He says, from your childhood, you've been acquainted with these sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, these sacred writings, these scriptures, the words of God that have been carried throughout history, the word Bible means book, but it's almost better to translate it as library that we have a compendium of books, all telling one story over generations, telling us what God is doing as he brought a rescuer on our behalf to bring salvation. And all of us feel that. Everyone around us knows there's something beautiful about us. There's a potential in humanity, but there's something broken in us that we can't fix. And we're longing to find, how do I get out of the situation I'm in? How do I move to a better place? How do I get rescue? How do I find salvation? And he says, these scriptures make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. This showed you the way. And then he tells him in the next verse, all scriptures breathed out by God. I love that imagery that Paul says, do you know what this is? This is the breath of God on a page. What's fascinating about that is, is the language of, of God's word and God's breath all through the Bible is how God brings things to life. You see, in Genesis chapter one, when there's just chaos and void, the spirit of the God is hovering over the surface of the water. That word spirit is the same word as breath and the same word as wind. That in Genesis chapter one, the wind of God, the spirit of God, the breath of God begins to move and then God speaks and the world is formed. God speaks and life comes out of death. God speaks and something beautiful comes out of nothing. And then in Genesis chapter two, God forms the man out of dust from the ground and God breathes and man becomes a living being. And you see in Ezekiel, after sin has devastated humanity, God prophesies a day when he will raise people from the dead spiritually and knit them together into his family. And he says, prophesy to the breath, tell the spirit, the wind to blow, and I will bring the dead to life. That you see all throughout the Bible, God loves this imagery of when my wind blows, my spirit moves, my word will speak, and the dead come to life. And what's fascinating is all through the Bible, that imagery is used of us needing to be born again. That we were born physically, but we need to be born by the Spirit. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, was a learned man, a studier of the scriptures, but he came to Jesus to understand what does God really want? And Jesus told him in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do whatever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And he tells him, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand that. What do you mean born again? I don't think mom's down with that. And Jesus is like, no, wait a minute. You need to be born by the spirit. And then Jesus says, the wind blows where it will. He uses the same imagery. And he says, so it is with the Spirit of God. You must be born of the Spirit. You've been born physically, but you need your insides to come alive. How? By the breath of God to enter back into your lungs, by the word of God spoken to you. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, said it in James chapter one. He's talking about the goodness of God and how to know God cares. He says, of his own will, his own desire, he brought you forth, that's birthing imagery, by the word of truth. He says that someone spoke this word to you and you believed it and you came alive. This isn't just an ordinary book. Uh, I love the movie uh, Never Ending Story. I don't know if you ever watched that as a kid, right? Where the kid runs into the little bookstore and, and the guy's reading a book and the kid's like, what book is that? And he's like, you're not interested in this book. And the kid's like, I love books. I read all kinds of books. He's like, what do you read? Robinson Crusoe? Hmm? Sherlock Holmes? Those are safe. This book, it's not safe. And that's just biting on the style of the Bible, right? All the books we read are safe. This book is something else entirely. 
This is the word of God, the breath of God, that you were brought forth by the word of truth. Someone spoke God's word to you and you came alive. That's what this says. This is God's means for the new birth. Uh, he's using imagery Peter uses in 1 Peter. He says, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. They're grabbing language Jesus used in, in his first major sermon. Jesus came out and he used this parable of a farmer throwing seed into the dirt. He says, there's different kinds of soils. And the farmer's throwing seeds out. And, and some of those seeds, he says, birds eat it. It just gets picked up right away. Some of them, a little plant begins to grow, but the sun scorches it and dies. Some of them, the, the seed gets into the soil. It grows a little bit, but weeds choke it. He says, and some of them, the seed lands in the dirt and it explodes into life. And he says, if you got ears, you should be listening. And his disciples asked him later, what was that about? And he said, those seeds are the word of God. He said, what I'm doing and what you will do is you will take my word about who I am, who you are, what's wrong with you, how it's dealt with, these fundamental truths, you will take them and you will scatter them to humanity. And some of them, it'll get picked away immediately. They're already texting somebody about brunch. Others, they'll be interested, but a little persecution will make them drop the book. Others, they'll begin to read the words of God and it'll begin to grow in their soul, but the cares of this world will choke it out. And other people, the word of God is like a seed that drops into the depths of your soul and then it bursts forth into life and you come alive because someone preached the word to you. That's who we are as the church. We are people of the book. Why? Because we know this is God's instrumental means of the new birth. You must be born again. And how are you born again? By the word of truth. D.L. Moody was asked once, why do you preach you must be born again? And he said, because you must be born again. <laughs> and how does that happen? We are brought forth by the word of truth, that the, the breath of God brings you to life. That's how this works. So why are we people of the book? Because this book brings people to life. We are the nursemaids of the new birth, right? Um, I, I taught a group of preachers recently, and I told them this, you know, as preachers, so many that I, people will ask me about it. They'll talk about how do you do illustrations, and how do you do an opener, and how do you kind of craft a sermon, and, and, and technique matters, but I told them, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're a farmer, how, how awesome your overalls are. It doesn't matter if you're like dancing around the plow and you got moves. It doesn't matter if you can pontificate for hours about the minerals in the soil. If you never plant the seed, you'll never grow life. And I told them, work on your style. Make it interesting. By all means, don't bore us with the word of God. But you just make sure when you gather together every week, you plant the seed of the word of God. That it's not me, it's not a great illustration, it's not a funny story that's gonna bring the dead to life. But the breath of God brings the dead to life. So preach this book, because these words are the instrumental means of the new birth. This is what we need, and this is what God's given us. Do you see it? And let me encourage you, some of you hear that and you go, well, Ben, okay, that's your job, right? So preach the word, do it every week. We'll show up, now we understand why you're doing what you do. But hey, we're all called to do this together. And I just wanna encourage you, if you're not a preacher, there's a place for preachers, there really are. There's a great passage in uh, uh, the book of Acts. We read the Bible together, me and my kids in the morning, and we just read this, where the Ethiopian eunuch is riding in his carriage and God tells Philip to run up alongside of him, which is a crazy thing to do. Philip just starts jogging up next to the guy and the guy's reading the prophet Isaiah. And Philip goes, hey, what you reading? And then he says, do you understand that? And the guy says, how can I unless someone guides me? And Philip's like, can I? Can I jump in? 
and jumps in and begins to talk to him about the Word of God. So there's a place for explainers of the Word of God. But, but at the end of the day, I would encourage you, don't overcomplicate it. I, I, I know for me, uh, when I was right out of college, I became a youth pastor, and we were at a church plant. I mean, there, there was uh, hardly anybody at the church. And so I was just, any high school kid I met, I'd get to know them. And, and so my first youth group was just all punks. Literally, like they were all black and pink and safety pins were everywhere on them. And uh, they just didn't like look like your stereotypical suburban church kid at all, right? But I met one of them and, and I remember just saying like, do you even know what this is about? Do you even know what God is doing in the world? Do you even know what this book is about? And she said, no. And I said, can I take about five minutes to explain it to you? And I drew her a picture of, of, of God and wrote his attributes out and, and humanity, how we're made to be with God. But because of sin, we've fallen and, and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And I drew this picture and I wrote these Bible verses all over it from the book of Romans that just kind of wrote out all these Bible verses. I remember at the end of it, she was like, can I keep this piece of paper? I said, yeah. She said, I want to look up these verses later. And I said, you should, yeah. Because that word is ultimately what matters, not the opinion of a youth pastor who's never been a part of a youth group before. But this word <laughs> has survived. Yeah, you need to lean into it. And she began to invite her friends. And I remember I tried to get cute, tried to use illustrations. We'd go sit in this Taco Bell, and I'm trying to tell them stories and be winsome. And every now and again, she'd interrupt me and be like, just, just, just do the picture with the verses. Is what you're doing? Do the thing with the, with, the, with the book. And so I want to encourage you. You may not feel equipped to help your friend know God, but it's the word of God that brings life. It really is. And uh, so don't be scared to share this word. It's the instrumental means of the new birth. And it's the appointed means of spiritual growth. This is not just what brings us to life. It's how we grow. He said in 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love that. He says, this is, this is all you need for teaching. That is to give you the right information on who God is, who you are, where the world is going, why you exist, what's wrong with you, and how it's dealt with. This is sufficient for you for teaching people right information. It's sufficient for reproofing, reproofing people. That means confronting bad ideas. For correcting people, that means getting you on the right track. And for training people in righteousness, that is to get you moving. That I show you what the world's about, I get you away from some bad ideas, I get you linked up with the right ideas, and I get you moving the direction you're meant to move. This gives you all you need to do that. This is all you need to be equipped to help people be who they're meant to be under God. This is our equipment for you to grow spiritually. Do you see that? Uh, what is Batman and Robin without their utility belt? They're just a hostage waiting to happen. That's all. In the church without the word of God, we are a victim to whatever this world may throw at us, right? And yet God has given us his word to train us in righteousness, to show us where to go, how to move in the world that he's made. Uh, I remember for me years ago, my sister uh, was traveling in Italy and uh, she called me and she said, hey, I'm gonna travel in Italy with a friend, but we've made no plans, uh, and so we need you to research, come up with a plan, and uh, meet us in Rome by that statue of that guy. Which was a terrifying thing for an older brother to hear, that she's showing up in a foreign country where she doesn't speak the language, has no place to stay, and no idea what she's doing. And she knew that terror would lead me as a studier uh, to get to work and make a plan. She was smart in that way, and uh, I did it. And I remember I showed up at a bookstore and I grabbed every single travel guide they had on Italy and I would study late into the night and just read through these books. And most of them were complete garbage. 
And I realized that pretty quickly because they were just filled with photos and adjectives. Photos of the things you would see. There's Michelangelo's David, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm about to go see the real one. I need you to tell me how to navigate the train station to get to it because I don't speak the language. And then they'd be filled with adjectives about how the Pieta is majestic and transformative. And I'm like, I believe that. I'm about to see it in person. I need you to help me figure out how to navigate the streets because I don't speak the language. And most of these books, I'm like, they're not helping me figure out where to go. And finally, in my frustration, I opened the final book and I was at first resistant because it had no photos. It had no glossies. It looked kind of dull. But as I opened up Rick Steves, I remember I turned to the front page and he said, when you land at the airport, don't get traveler's checks. Nobody uses those. He says, when you get out there, go to your left, go to this gate. There'll be an ATM, pull cash there. That's where you want to get your money. And I'm like, wow, that is so specific. <laughs> and then he was like, hey, and you need to get a, a, a bus to get away from the uh, airport to get into the city. And when you do that, don't buy the ticket outside. They mark it up 20%, buy the ticket inside and then walk out to the bus. And I'm like, he's saving me 20% already. I'll start taking notes. I buy the book. I'm underlining, memorizing, right? And I remember when I uh, was sitting at the airport reading through this thing. I had it tabbed up, all kinds of stuff. I was studying like I was going to finals. And I remember this girl came up to me at the airport and she was like, excuse me, are you going to Italy? And I'm like, yeah. Well, she could see Italy emblazoned on the front of my book or the terminal I'm sitting at. And I said, yeah. And she was like, is that a good book? Yeah. And she was like, I don't know about my book. And she's holding one of those other ones. I was like, yeah, no, I've seen your book. It's uh, garbage. I don't know how you're going to make it. She's like, mine just has pictures and adjectives. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm reviewing the section on how to navigate the train station. She's like, can I sit by you? I'm like, yeah, come on, sit down. And I started showing her, yeah, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to move here. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And I remember as we're doing that, this other girl comes up to me and she's like, excuse me, are you guys going to Italy? And she looks, and I'm like, what's the deal with terrified young women traveling alone to Italy? Sit down, love. And we began to look at it together. And I remember we flew over there we got out, and I kid you not, when we land in the airport, I'm holding the book open, and I'm like, he says to turn a left, and as you do it, you should see the ATM machine, and we saw it, and they were literally holding my arms. We were like lions and tigers and bears, oh my, like walking through the airport, and everything this book said about how to navigate was true. And by the time we were done in Italy, I remember looking at our pictures, and the book was in every photo. I'm not kidding. Like, we, people we met, friends we made, my sister and I were like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. I mean, we were just like, this book is all you need to navigate a foreign place well. And Paul says, this is gonna give you all you need to be equipped for every good work. What was written in former days was for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You need some hope today? I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning. I didn't want to. Just woke up because anxiety woke me up. And I just started writing down, okay, let's do this. Writing down all these things that were concerning for me. And then I just opened up the word of God to the next passage I was in. And it bowled me over with hope. You need some hope today? The endurance of this encouragement of this word gives you hope. The law of the Lord, the psalmist says, is perfect. Reviving the soul. Your soul tired? This is built for that. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You feel simple? You feel out of your league intellectually, moving in the circles you're moving in? This makes the simple wise. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You need some joy? This has got it for you. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. How can a young man keep his way pure? Some of you are wondering that. You got yourself into some things and you go, I have no idea how to get myself out. And the scripture says, it's by living according to your word. That I grip this word that has lasted through the centuries, that, that has led the greatest of all men and women. And I grip this word and I walk by it. That it trains me, it corrects me, it, 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 it instructs me, it trains me and moves me in paths of righteousness. Your young generation is setting the dubious records of being the most anxious generation on record. And the American Bible Society just did a study in America and they asked adults in America, how often do you read the word of God? 40% said never. Uh, when specifically millennials and younger were asked why, 30% said, I don't know where to start. Not that wild? It wasn't some resistance, like, ah, it's old or irrelevant. They said, because I don't know where to start. But when asked to rate their curiosity, well over half said, I'm extremely or very curious. Your generation is seeing, I don't know how to navigate in the dark. And God has given you a tool, a plan, a path in his word. And if you don't know where to start, you keep coming back. That's part of what the church is for. It's part of what our core classes are for. You want to walk through the book of 2 Timothy. It'll take you 12 minutes to read this book out loud. Uh, we put on our uh, YouTube, not, not the church one, but on, <laughs> on the one that's entitled Ben Stewart. It's, it's a bit of an abandoned playground uh, amusement park, but we don't post on it that much. But uh, it's got me teaching the whole book of 2 Timothy in little five, 10-minute increments. You want to sit across the coffee table with me and study this book? Go on our YouTube and decide, I'm going to read 2 Timothy this summer, and I'll read it along with you. Write out the book of 2 Timothy. That's what I did as a young 20-year-old when I felt overwhelmed. I just started writing out the Word of God because I write slow. And as I slowly etched it on this page, God was slowly etching it in my heart. And let me tell you something. I watched a lot of friends make foolish decisions that the Lord saved me from. I remember my fifth grade year as a uh, elementary school kid, they made us take this test and to see if you were going to get in the honors program or the, uh, we didn't have cute titles back then, like you're in the gold squad or the silver squad. It was like, you're either in the smart class or the moron class. I was like, wow, <laughs> stark. And uh, I didn't make it in the smart one. And all my friends did. And boy, that, that just threatened to land on an identity. You know what I mean? I showed up in this class and these kids like, what's a battle? And I'm like, did he say, what's a battle? Like, oh man. And uh, I remember opening the book of Proverbs. I was doing uh, a devotion. Some, someone had given me the challenge as a 10-year-old to just read a little bit of the Bible at a time. And, and I read the book of Proverbs and it was, says at the beginning, it's to make wise the simple. And I thought, that's me. I'm simple. I'm not wise. And so I began to write out the book of Proverbs as a 10-year-old. And can I tell you what started to happen? I started walking, watching friends in junior high make some crazy decisions. And as I watched them do it, Proverbs would jump to mind. I remember I had one of my good buddies like, hey, man, after school, we just like to wander the streets and beat up little kids. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that because <laughs> a man without restraints like an unwalled city. I, I don't think I want to go where you're going. And these Proverbs would link to, link to mind. And you know what's wild? 
by the time I left middle school, do you know what I had multiple teachers tell me? They said, you know what's weird about you, Ben? You're wise for your age. I started to hear that a lot. And I realized it's not me. It's not genetics. It's because I got a guide. I've been trained in righteousness. And I want that for you. Many of you are stumbling in the dark. Let me tell you something. God has given you all you need so that the man of God, the woman of God, can be equipped for every good work. Let us help you with it. Let us help you with it. You need this book. And the last reason why we do it is because it's our duty to deliver it. It's our duty to deliver this book. And this is where Paul gets real serious with Timothy, talking about us as a church. What are we supposed to do? We're gonna talk over the next couple of weeks about all that a church is supposed to do. I love that we're talking about Love DC. We're supposed to serve the city. There's a lot we're supposed to do. But over and over again, Paul takes him back to this book. These are the words of God. You gotta deliver this into your generation, Timothy. And he tells him in chapter four, verse one, I charge you. It's a serious word. I, I'm, I'm making you swear by a solemn oath, Timothy. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Can you imagine if a friend started a conversation that way? Hey man, can I ask you something? What? Actually, I don't want to ask you. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is coming again and will judge all of humanity, those who are alive and those who are dead. You're like, Whoa, whatever you're about to say feels really intense. And he says, I charge you, preach this word. Herald it, that's what it means, like a town crier. You stand in the middle of the town and say, hear ye, hear ye, I got a word for you. Uh, heralds don't change the words of the king. They're not like, well, the king's a little boring, let me spice this up. King's a little old school, let me kind of modernize it. That's not the herald's job. The waiter's job is not to help the cook out. The cook cooks, the waiter delivers. And he says, Timothy, you show up and you just hold out the word of life. This is what they need. This is what brings the dead to life. This is what makes the simple wise. This is what trains up my children in righteousness. You hold out this word. Preach the word. We're called to. And sometimes, because I said so, is a good enough reason, right? As a parent, you know that. As a kid, you don't respect it. But for me, as a parent, I understand the usefulness of the tool. I try to reason with them. But sometimes when we just can't connect the dots... We get all the way down to, because I charge you in the presence of your mother and father, go to your room, right? Like sometimes you just lean into your authority and say, because I said so, and you got to trust, I know what I'm doing. And he says, church, I charge you, preach this word. Be ready, in season and out of season. Uh, that's farming imagery. You got to work hard. In season, working hard is fun. You work hard, but at the end of the day, uh, there, there's fruit in the baskets. There's, there's a, a harvest in the barn. It's hard work, but you see the payoff. Out of season, still got to work hard. But you work hard, but at the end of the day, it's still a blank field, no life. You still got to grind through the winter, but you don't see immediate results. And he says, hey, church, you preach this word when they cheer you. You preach this word when they boo you. First recorded sermon in the book of Acts, 3,000 people came to faith that day. Just a couple chapters later, Stephen is stoned to death for preaching a brilliant sermon on the Old Testament. So whether they celebrate you or stone you, preach the word. In season, out of season. Reprove, that, that means to correct people. It's not just pontificating. Uh, the Bible is literature. If your version of God 
never challenges you, if you have a spirituality where your version of a deity always agrees with whatever your preference is right now, you don't have a God. Your, your God's just you. But, but when you take seriously the word of God, it will challenge you. It will rebuke you. But that's what you want because you know you're not sufficient on your own. You want a book that will challenge you, offend you, and change you, and deliver you, to rebuke you, and to exhort you, to say, don't go that way, but come this way. That path leads to death. This path leads to life. And when we do that in the world, some people will love it, some people will hate it. And so he says, do it with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because it's our duty to deliver it because others won't. It's a fascinating motivation Paul gives him in verse three. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He says, Timothy, preach this word. Why? Because they don't want to hear it. That's a, that's a bad motivation, it seems like. Preach it, why? Because they don't want to hear it. You're like, well, then why would I do it? This is because there's kind of come a day where people's passions, what they want, will lead them to go find preachers who will tell them what they want to hear. It's amazing how the Bible's just prophesying about TikTok right here, <laughs> centuries ago. <laughs> this is gonna happen. You're like, oh, Okay. Let me just get people who will say the Bible says whatever I want to believe anyway. And he says, Timothy, there's going to be a lot of them. And people are going to love it. And you go, well, then why would I do it? He says, because if they listen to it, they will wander off into myths. They will lead people astray and you get hurt over there. Don't listen to them. And so he says, Timothy, in a difficult and a dark day, a lot of people won't herald this book, but somebody's got to do it. I remember as I studied that, I was like, man, how does that work? Like, what does that even mean? And I'm like, oh yeah, this is what every hero movie is about. Every movie we pay billions to see is about a dark day, a difficult day, a challenging day, and everyone's scared and no one knows what to do and people are scattered in chaos and somebody stands up and says, this is what's right, this is what's true, we're going this way and heroes rise up to do the right thing and the hard thing to lead people out of death and into life. And he says, Timothy, that's what you're supposed to do. In a difficult day, in a dark day, you herald not your life, not your words, but God's life in God's words. Others won't do it. You got to do it, Timothy. You're like a quarterback in the pocket, feeling the defense coming, but you got to plant your feet and deliver that ball. And that's what the church is meant to be. We plant our feet in the middle of Washington, D.C., and we deliver this word. Why? Because we know this is the word of life. This is what you need. And this is what we do. And it's our turn. I love it. He tells Timothy, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Uh, the drink offering was the last sacrifice at the end of the day in Old Testament imagery. You'd sacrifice a lamb, you'd burn incense, and at the very end, at dusk, after the priest had worked all day long in the temple, he would take the glass of wine and he would pour it out, and down to the dregs, it's finally over. An aging Paul looks at his life and he says, Timothy, I'm done. I'm at the end. He says, the time of my departures come. That, that word departures, analusis, it means to untie. It was what you would use to strike a tent if you were on a battlefield. 
said, Timothy, he's calling me off the battlefield. I don't get to fight anymore. It's what you would use to untether a ship that was leaving. He's calling me to a far off country, Timothy. I can't stay anymore. The previous generation's leaving. And so it's our turn now. That's what he's telling Timothy. It's your turn. Uh, I remember sitting with a, a pastor buddy, a peer, a few years ago. And we were remarking on the death of the men that we used to look to that whenever um, a tragedy would happen, something difficult that we knew we would have to preach to our youth groups or our college ministries, we, we would always Google whatever this person said and do our version of that. And we said, our mentors are dying away. And I remember looking at him and I'm saying, this next generation, all they have is us. And he went, God help them. <laughs> like, right? It's a little scary. And yet all of us are waiting for our turn to lead waiting for our turn to do something with our life, waiting for our turn to be somebody. And Paul's looking at Timothy and saying, Timothy, it's your turn. Preach this word. Give it to your generation. We all want to live for the next generation, but the book of Acts says of David, the king, it says when he had fulfilled God's purposes for his generation, he fell asleep. You, you only get one generation to live in and make a difference in, and then you're gone. And it's your turn. It's our turn now to carry this word. There are people who lived for this book, died for this book, to deliver this book to us so we might know the words of life. And now it's our turn. On that trip to Italy, I remember we were on this tour and they took us to this church and the guy leading the tour wasn't a believer. But I remember at one point we stood in this church and he said, everybody turn around. We were standing at the altar and he said, look at the back doors. What do you see? And next to the back door, kind of inset in the wall were these two stones that, that were kind of, uh, smooth, they, they look like bowling balls with the top cut off, baked into the wall. He was like, you see those bowling ball looking things? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you know what those are? I said, no. And he said, they're weights. He said, back in the day, they were used to weigh grain in the marketplace. You'd bring your grain, your fruit, your whatever, and they would weigh them, and that's how you get paid. He said, but if you were transacting business in Rome, whenever you were transacting business, you had to offer a pinch of incense to the goddess Roma and say, uh, hail Caesar. The first Christian declaration was, hail Christ. He's the Lord, not, not Caesar. And he said, so you would come to the marketplace as a Christian and they would tell you, worship Caesar as Lord. Caesar is Lord. Curia Caesar. And the Christian wouldn't do it. And I remember this guy looked at us and he wasn't a Christian, but he remember at this moment, his, his tone changed. He was like, what I respect about the Christians is they wouldn't play the game. He said they would stand there and say, respectfully, Caesar is not the Lord. Christ is Lord. And he said in that moment, they would take their head and smack it against the stone and say, let's try that again. Kuria Kaisar. They'd say, Kuria Yesu. Boom, bash their head against the stone. And he said, this is what Rome would do to silence the name of Jesus. And he said, and yet the Christians persisted, like Paul told Timothy, with patience, with love, caring for people, praying for your enemies, serve those who persecute you. And what happened? The gospel spread, not just in spite of suffering, but even through it, because they watched us suffer well for our enemies. And he says, as the church began to grow, they took these stones and inset them in the wall on your way out. So you would come in to worship Jesus, learning about him through his word, preserved for the centuries, people who laid down their lives to preserve it. And then when you walked out of the building, you would see those stones. And what they said to you was, it's your turn. It's your turn now. Previous generations took the hit so that you might live. Now it's your turn. 
there's a beautiful old poem from World War I called Flanders Fields. It's written as if from uh, the World War I soldiers who died and were buried in Flanders Fields. And one of the best lines that stands out to me is these soldiers speaking to the next generation says, to you with failing hands we throw the torch, be it yours to hold it high. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. To you with failing hands I throw the torch. It's yours to hold it high. Why are we people of the book? Because this is the instrumental means of the new birth. This is the means of spiritual growth. And it's our duty to proclaim it, to offer it, to hold forth the word of life, take the hit it requires to deliver this to our generation until we see his face. But here's the good news, because I know it just got real serious in here. It's our duty, but it's also our delight. Because Paul says, I fought the good fight. I love that. We tend to say that statement like, I gave it my best shot. I fought the good fight. Like, yeah, you gave it a good shot, you know? And no, the word good modifies the fight, not the fighting. What he's telling Timothy is, I fought the right fight. There's a lot of fights you can fight in your world that will go away and not matter. I picked the right one, Timothy. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who love his appearing. I love that. He says, hey, Christ is coming as a judge and a king, and he's appearing. And he says, in Timothy, on that day, there was a crown and commendation for you if you love his appearing. You go hard, Timothy. We hold out the word of life, Timothy. This is our job. We're the people of this book. And when you do that, just know this, Timothy, he loves that and he will bless that and he will reward that and he will honor that. He loves what you're doing. We are Robin Hood. Use that illustration a few times here. I'm talking about the Kevin Costner Robin Hood, those uninitiated. In a difficult day, a day of injustice, a sheriff who's compromised and exploiting people, many people are, are coward and too afraid. And yet Robin Hood comes and says, no, my allegiance is to the true king of this land. And he may not be here yet, but he's coming back and I'm his. And that statement costs him. Had to leave the castle, lost some friends, had to live out in the trees, had to build a system of tree houses, network of rope bridges. And yet as he did it, a little band of merry men began to gather and they began to use their energy to serve those who were hurting, use the energy to care about those who were unable to care for themselves. And then finally, in that beautiful, fateful day, Sean Connery returns. And as the king returns, what happens? The sheriff who had defied the king, he's judged. The people who were too afraid and coward, they were thrilled to see the king, but ashamed they didn't live according to his principles. But those who said, no, I was about the business of the king, they loved his appearing, and he loved theirs. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Ezra where it's as of Ezra, the good hand of God was on him. And every time I read that, I'm like, God, I want that to be true of me. I want people to say that about him. The good hand of God is on him. I want them to see the blessing of our church, the blessing of our life, the blessing of our family. And I don't want them to go, oh, it makes sense. They're in DC, there's some high capacity people. Oh yeah, they had some people with great voices. That's why their worship band's so great. Oh yeah, they had some people serving that were so great. Yeah, yeah, A plus B equals C, and so A, C, and this. Yeah, it all adds up. I want them to look at us and go, this doesn't make any sense. That guy is leading that deal. 
that guy's wife like that, his kids are like that. This, this is, surely there's a God for you to have this kind of life because you, A plus B does not equal C. This is one plus one doesn't equal 50. And yet I'm looking at 50. And you go, how do you live a life like that? Where your coworkers say, your religious commitments are backwards and regressive and strange, but you seem happy and peaceful and joyful and none of this adds up. Surely there must be a God. It says the good hand of God was on him for he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. You want the blessing of God? You gather around this book that brings you to life. The words of God delivered to us that by his spirit we can have life. And you go, I'm gonna walk according to this word. I'm gonna let it lead me. And I'm gonna proclaim this word to people who need to know the king that it tells them. And I'm gonna do that until the day I see his face. And as we do that, I promise you, the good hand of the Lord will be on us. It already is. I love that I get to travel all over the country and people say, well, how are things going in DC? And they say it in ominous tones. And I say, the church is exploding and God is on the move. And our access per space is overflowing. When we gather with our volunteers, our door holders, the stories of God's faithfulness come pouring out. The good hand of God is on us. We are the people of Jesus, led by his word until we see his face. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.